Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, coal, energy, and the environment. So, Richard, we've just had President Obama unveil the final version of his proposed EPA regulations to combat global warming. Uh, American power plants under this plan are supposed to reduce their carbon emissions by a third by 2030. They have to work out their plan for how to do so by 2018. This will be the first time that there have ever been federal limits on carbon emissions. There are also, of course, some mandates in there for how much of the energy supply has to come from renewables and things like that. A lot of folks are upset about this, especially in the coal industry. Um, let's just start on the policy side. We've talked about global warming before on this program, and you characterize yourself, I think, as uh, somewhat skeptical of the more apocalyptic predictions, but also not entirely undisturbed uh, on the matter. Given that orientation, how does this strike you on substantive policy terms? Well, I think what happens is the first thing you have to note is there's no domestic solution to a global warming problem, uh, particularly in the United States. Now, the serious sources of pollution, if carbon dioxide is to be considered the source, or methane, which is more potent but less long-lived, are China and India. And in both of these places, uh, it turns out progress is going to be very, very slow. And so one of the things you have to fear is if the skepticism in India and China about global warming is really very deep, anytime we decide we're going to cut our production by one ton of carbon dioxide, they may increase theirs by one or perhaps two, or at least slow down the rate by which they're going to slow down. And so unless you can elicit that kind of international cooperation, uh, this program can't possibly succeed in its larger dimensions. That's the first problem. The second problem is just how serious is the problem. And, you know, if you were to ask the question in the following form, uh, does man-made carbon dioxide increase the temperature of the atmosphere around the globe? The answer to that question, everybody agrees, is yes. Uh, but what's concealed in this particular statement is how much. Uh, so you could make this statement if you think that all the pollution that you put out in the current system unabated is going to increase temperature around the globe by the next 80 years by one-tenth of one degree. That's perfectly consistent with the proposition. If on the other hand you think that even 10% of what we have now is going to increase things by 5%, that's also consistent with the proposition. But if you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, those two particular polar positions yield radically different policy prescriptions. And the former one, you do nothing but enjoy it. And the second one, what you do is you go into emergency mode right now, lest the earth come to an end. So what way does the data point? And again, here, uh, first thing you do is look at the past numbers, and then you try to figure out what the extrapolation is. Uh, there certainly has been an increase, but interestingly enough, the huge rush of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is roughly speaking post-2000, whereas most of the increase in the temperature that we've observed is before 2000, when carbon dioxide emissions, both in total level and in annual production, were far less. And so the question is, why is it that you have an increase when it's low rather than high? Some of the uh, global warming 
concerned, people concerned with this stuff, they just lump the two periods together and they ignore the differences between the half of them, which means that they're systematically overstating uh, the kind of problem. So then your second thing is you start looking at the predictions. Well, it's almost 10 years since Al Gore told us that we were all about to die, um, an inconvenient truth. Uh, and what has happened is the models at that particular point estimated that you would have an increase in carbon dioxide concentration of about 0.6 degrees centigrade, which is more than a degree Fahrenheit. And if you actually look at it, it's probably less than a tenth of that amount. Um, it's virtually level, slight increase over 16 years. Well, if you're off by this and then you try to extrapolate um, and you do it for 10 periods, um, in one case, you get 6.2 zero changes in centigrade, which is ruinous, I think, for everybody on the Earth. And then on the other, you get about, you know, 0.25, uh, which as far as I'm concerned, will be beneficial in some parts of the globe and be harmful in the others. And you don't even know which way they net out. You don't know how much of the change is contributing to us. So you put all of these things together in this particular fashion. Um, it doesn't seem to me that they've made out the case for an emergency. And yet, it's as though we're still talking 2006 and the last 10 years of data doesn't seem to matter. So uh, you certainly have to worry about this problem in some sense, uh, but there's a real question about a proportionate response um, to a perceived risk, which I think under the EPA report is a bit over the top. Are you troubled that a big sort of sweeping plan like this comes out in this uh, situation from the administrative state rather than the legislative branch? The counterargument is always, well, this is highly technical and you really need the experts producing this rather than the lawmakers. Does that cut any ice with you? Well, you certainly need experts to do it, but remember that they have to have the right framework. And it turns out one of the reasons why this system is going to be so disastrous is the current system that we have is simply the wrong framework within which to um, 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 solve this kind of problem. Go back to the original structure of the um, Clean Air Act. And what they do is they have something known as ambient air quality targets. And what you really have to do is to figure out in each particular reason how much of each particular kind of pollutant can be done. And if you're talking about sulfur dioxide in the Los Angeles basis, the local approach starts to make any sense. Then the second element of this program is actually a design failure. What it says is the federal government sets the ambient air quality control standards. And what the states do is figure out which of the various plants and facilities have to do it. Another way of saying that is that the property rights on the liability side are completely indefinite. So you could take one company and make them pay a great deal and another company make them pay very little. You can grandfather, you can not grandfather. So what it does is it invites a political rand rush um, at the state levels where everybody's trying to figure out ways to force the liabilities off on the competitors and not bear them themselves. And if the SIP thing doesn't work, that is the state implementation plan, the federal government can impose a FIP, a federal implementation plan, which the state can then try to modify. So you get this sort of ping pong going between the two of them. But in both cases, everything turns out to be indefinite. And if you had at the beginning a program which says we're taxing each pollution at its source by a particular amount, doesn't care who admitted or when, um, under those circumstances, there's much less jockeying for position. And so the system would be much more efficient. And these defects now show themselves in the current situation. Um, one of the things that the EPA does, it says we set targets for different states. Well, what on earth lets them know that Texas should have a very tough problem and North Dakota should have a very light 
thing. Um, they seem to think they know what they're talking about, but I dare say they do not. And so what will happen is, given the differential burden, you're going to see huge pushbacks from places like Texas to stop it. And then there's going to be this huge internal struggle within the state if they're forced to capitulate as to who has to bear the brunt of this particular program and why. It's just not a sound way to run this kind of a system. And there's nothing that the EPA can do by pulling on this or that lever to overcome this. In fact, their statutory authority for this program is vanishingly weak. And what you do need is a congressional situation which recognizes it as a national problem, gets rid of both the FIPS and the SIPS, and tries to figure out how you tax either carbon dioxide or methane at some constant level regardless of its source in a way to essentially get the discretion out of the administrative state. Let me follow up on that that prospect for pushback and, and in a broader sense the legal side of this. In 2007, the Supreme Court gave the EPA this power by deciding that carbon dioxide could be regulated as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. With that in mind, what legal remedies are available for people who want to stop this initiative? Well, I mean, certainly what you can't do is make the per se attack that carbon dioxide is not a pollutant given that the Supreme Court has said that it is. You can disparage the decision in Massachusetts against the EPA, which was, in fact, a terrible piece of administrative law, which I think really uh, misread all of the previous precedents on the level of discretion given to an administrative agency. But the Environmental Protection Act is an exceedingly complicated statute and you have multiple layers of things that you have to go through. And, and so what happens is the traditional version of regulation was very modest. It said under the statute, I think section 112, um, what you do is if you want to stop pollution, the government can tell you to stop pollution by using something called the best system of um, emissions reduction, the BSER. Um, and they just control that. Now, What's going on in this particular case is they don't want to control just the best systems of system reduction. What they want to do is to subsidize or get the states to subsidize other kinds of energy production, nuclear, solar, wind, and so forth. And what happens is they therefore tell the states, we want you to do this under a different section, which is you know not nearly as important traditionally. And the kicker is if the states decide not to comply, the federal government cannot put into place, it seems, I'm very cautious about this, a program which does the subsidies that they want. That is, it turns out the states may have the power to do these things, but if the federal government takes it over when the states say no, it does not have the power. Well, it cannot be correct to have an administrative law statute which says that the federal government can have an ability to coerce the states to do A, B, C, and D, but when it actually takes over, it can only do A. And that means that they must be misreading the statute, or at least it's a credible argument that they're misleading the statute. So the whole executive authority question is in fact going to be covered by the relationship of these various positions. And, you know, I'm not a full-time uh, environmental protection lawyer, but this is a 1,560-word general report on a statute in which every word can be subject to litigation beyond complexity. So if you're on the other side of this thing, you will find argument after argument. And to some extent, what you're going to be thinking is this. The Obama administration is over by 2017. Your first plans are supposed to be in by 2018. You know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. If this is done by executive order, the next administration, particularly if it's Republican, completely undo this kind of thing. 
So there's a political uncertainty, which comes from the fact that you don't have any legislative warrant for what's going on. The president is a little bit too much like Louis XIV when he announces that he can fix any problem that he sees without having to go to Congress. His famous boast is, if Congress won't fix this, I will. Well, I mean, he better know what he's talking about, and the odds are, notwithstanding the mellifluous prose, he really doesn't understand anything about the depth and the difficulty of either the technical issues on the environmental side or the legal issues on federal authorization. So the final thing I'll ask you, I mentioned up top that there, there are mandates in here for producing a certain amount of energy from renewable sources. We've seen that before in states like California, I think some of them in New England as well. And of course, every presidential cycle, we go through the drama with ethanol mandates because of the importance of Iowa. Point being, there's a lot of government fiddling with energy markets out there. For a classical liberal like yourself, is that all anathema or are there instances where maybe there is a role for the state? Well, no one denies that there's a role for the state in curbing pollution. That is, if you go back to all the great 19th century classical liberal guys, controlling nuisances was one of the major issues on their kind of agenda. Um, And what they believed is that you could either get damages or an injunction. And so whatever was actionable and whatever remedies were appropriate in individual cases were often difficult to realize when the pollution came from multiple sources and the people who were injured were all over the globe. And the administrative argument is simply the state can, as it were, coordinate the enforcement of the traditional norms on pollution damages and pollution injunctions. And that's the correct move. But what happens now is people say, oh, we could centralize this thing. Let's do all sorts of other things. And one of the things that you could never do with common law was to create subsidies for rival industries. And I don't think you ought to create subsidies here. I am neither for nor against solar industry. I think, in fact, it's probably a much more complicated choice than I understand as to the full cycle of producing and enforcing all of these solar mandates. But no subsidies is essentially the correct rule. And if the cost of solar energy goes down dramatically and you properly tax the pollution that is created by coal, you will get the appropriate kind of shift. I mean, I have no question, given the past judgments of the willingness to grandfather old coal plants, that we have many, many plants which should never be on the books because of mistaken policy that was made in the 1970 Clean Air Act and was not rectified thereafter. The essential problem in a sentence is is that we have real tough standards on new coal plants, which means that it's hard to use a new coal plant which pollutes, say, at one unit of pollution for 100 units of energy. So you keep online another situation which produces 20 units of pollution for 100 units of energy energy and you let the bad stay in without putting the good in, that's another thing which requires a legislative fix and we won't do it. So if you actually went back to the drawing boards and got people to sit down and understand what the classical liberal framework is, you would get rid of all the four subsidies that this administrator is contemplating. You know, I looked in the Wall Street Journal at a graph on this thing and it's, you know, it's kind of scary. Um, They want wind energy to go from 3.7 to 45% point six or without of units of generation and they want solar to go from point oh one to five point oh. You know, this is crazy. Um, in terms of what you expect, but you have to have those increases in order to offset the losses in coal. Whether or not you're better off going to natural gas, I don't know. 
But if you tax the externalities and avoid the subsidies, then you don't have to predict the end states. And what will happen is the levels of substitution will take place in a more rational fashion. It's the old Hayekian point. Although what the EPA knows about how a given plant operates is close to nothing. And when they start talking about the um, best systems of emissions reduction, they couldn't get within a light year of doing it for each of these plants, which is why you want to be taxing and regulating the outputs and not fiddling with the inputs the way in which this plan purports to do. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.